The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. So in my uh, usual form, I've uh, probably written a little bit too long, uh, so I will try to stay at time. Um, I'm going to start off with a quote. Quote, make America sober again. Uh, if you happen to be a bit of a night owl like me, you might have seen this commercial on late night uh, cable television. Uh, barring the campaign slogan from Trump, the commercial seems to be offering help and rehabilitation. In reality, it's a marketing service that, as the tiny disclaimer at the bottom reads, provides, quote, informational services and is not a substance abuse treatment program or service. In other words, it's not about finding the right treatment center for any of the estimated 20.5 million Americans who are, currently, uh, who are currently thought to have a substance use disorder. It's not about getting appropriate treatment for the 2 million of those people who are addicted uh, to prescription pain relievers or the nearly 600,000 more who regularly use heroin. Uh, no, what it is, however, is an example of the way in which under capitalism, every crisis, even one as profound as the current opioid e epidemic, is seen as an opportunity to make a profit. Um, it's not only, I would say, a capitalism-created disaster, it is very much emblematic of a kind of perfect storm of American capitalism that has its roots in the destruction of once thriving communities and the disappearance of working class jobs, in systemic racism, in poverty that uh, disproportionately affects blacks, Latinos, and Native Americans, as well as a segment of working class whites um, who, are, who, are under this, who are disproportionately affected by this poverty as well. It's, it's expressed in failed drug war policies, in cuts to public services, in a lack of health care, and the nature of for-profit health care and the managed care system. And in particular, the utter greed of the US pharmaceutical industry and the politicians who enable it at every turn. Um, in an appearance in Nashville in late May, Donald Trump declared that when it comes to the opioid crisis, the numbers are way down. We are getting the word out, bad stuff. You go to the hospital, you have a broken arm, you come out, you're a drug addict with this crap. It's way down. We're doing a good job with it. Um, Hopefully I don't need to say this, but that is ridiculous. Um, it's, you know, it would be news to anyone who's living in a town struggling with addiction crisis, um, or the social service providers who are totally overtaxed, or the families whose children, mothers, fathers, and sometimes grandparents as well are winding up incarcerated in the hospital or in the ground as a result. Um, I know there are actually some clinicians in, and, and possibly some physicians in, and nurses and, and others in, in the room tonight, so I hope they can talk about their own experiences. Um, just to go through some of the statistics, in 2016, more Americans died of drug overdoses than any other year on record, 63,000 people. Um, that's more than the total number of U.S. soldiers killed during the Vietnam War. 42,000 of those deaths were linked to opioids, whether prescription opioids like Oxycontin and Percocet, synthetic opioids like fentanyl and carfentanil, um, which are incredibly potent. Um, carfentanil is actually an elephant tranquilizer, um, or various forms of heroin, um, uh, or some combination of, of those. Um, to put that in perspective, it would be as if the entire city of Burling Burlington, Vermont, or San Bruno, California was wiped off the map. 
But now imagine ha it happening every year, and imagine get it getting worse every year. Um, 115 people in the U.S. every day are dying as a result of an opioid overdose, and that doesn't include deaths that are considered suicides where opioid use may be a compounding factor. <coughs> Largely as a result of the massive spike in these deaths, both 2015 and 2016 saw a decline in U.S. life expectancy, which is incredibly rare in a, in a developed nation in the modern era. Um, and officials say, by the way, that 2017 figures will almost certainly show another decline in life expectancy, something's not seen in the U.S. in nearly 100 years. Um, the larger pattern of deaths here is being driven by what um, some researchers call diseases of despair. Alcohol, prescription drug and illegal drug overdose, suicide, and alcoholic liver disease, cirrhosis of the liver. This is part of a larger trend that's been going on for years in certain parts of the country, beginning um, in places like Appalachia and the Rust Belt, where the prescription opioid epidemic, um, based on abuse of drugs like uh, Percocet and Oxy especially OxyContin, uh, first took hold in the 90s. According to the Journal of the American Metals Medical Association, deaths related to drugs increased by more than 600% across the US between 1980 and 2014. But they weren't distributed equally. Um, as CNN reported, for example, Boone County, West Virginia was the, uh, the county with the largest increase, 8,369% in deaths due to drug overdose. Despite the perception of the current uh, opioid crisis as a white male suburban and working class epidemic, opioid abuse has actually taken a heavy toll on life expectancy among, quote, economically stressed whites, both men and women, <coughs> But it's also taking a large toll among blacks, Latinos, and Native Americans, especially in urban areas. Um, it's, it's important, I think, to acknowledge that because we live in a society that is institutionally racist, that racism, so that racism shapes the narratives about drug use, defines who's criminalized and who's given support and services. Um, there's a difference in the way today's prescription opioid crisis um, has been talked about in comparison, for example, with the wave of crack use in the 1980s, which affected black populations in particular, um, or the, explode, uh, the explosion of meth in the 90s and 2000s, which was sort of associated in public consciousness with um, poor, quote unquote, white trash. Um, white people still suffer uh, a greater rate of over overdose deaths overall, but over the past several years, actually, black people have been increasingly killed by overdoses related to heroin and synthetic opioids like fentanyl, um, and sometimes that's um, cut with co cocaine. Uh, in Washington, D.C., for example, overall, overall opioid overdose deaths among black men aged 40 to 69 increased 245% between 2014 and 2017. One doctor told NPR, it's just that the population has been totally ignored. They are invisible. In Chicago, African Americans are fatally overdosing from opioids at a rate three times the national average. In a city that's 32% black, African Americans accounted for nearly half of all opioid-related deaths in 2016. It also appears to be the case that this new wave of deaths is affecting a number of older black heroin addicts in particular, um, who may have become users during a previous wave of heroin use in the 1970s, um, which actually started among soldiers returning from Vietnam. Um, but they may have been able to you know, maintain their habits for decades and actually live their lives. And they are now dying as a result of synthetic op opioids. 
Um, there's a terrible irony at work here too. Um, as it turns out, blacks are less likely to receive prescription opioids and more likely to abuse heroin and synthetics um, because in part of a lack of access to medical care and also because of long-standing racist assumptions, um, including that African-Americans are more likely to be drug seekers or drug sellers, um, so physicians are less um, likely to prescribe um, opioids, and also um, the false but still incredibly commonplace notion that African Americans simply tolerate pain better, um, which you know you would think shouldn't need to be said, but it's actually true, and black children actually don't get, there's studies showing they don't get appropriate pain medicine. Um, in other words, the racism which causes so much figurative and literal pain for African Americans has at least somewhat prevented larger numbers from having wider access to prescription opioids. Um, so the, 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 the crisis actually impacts that community in different ways. But the same factors of the social crisis, the same despair uh, underlie, that underlies the alcoholism, the increased suicides, the opioid abuse, Things like poverty, lack of jobs, deindustrialization, lack of health care, all the declines in living standards, these things are always more pronounced among the black community because of racism. Um, you know, unfortunately, there is more than enough despair to go around. It's important to acknowledge the difference um, in how various perceptions of who drug users are um, and how that, you know, the, the, the idea of who's worthy of help and who is not. Um, and how that shapes how this, this crisis gets talked about and framed by lawmakers and the media in particular. Um, a writer named uh, German Lopez uh, at Vox um, wrote, while the crack ep epidemic gave rise to headlines like new violence seen in users of cocaine in the New York Times, the opioid epidemic has led to sympathetic headlines like in heroin crisis, white families seek gentler war on drugs in the same newspaper 28 years later. The media portrayals during the crack ep epidemic were exceedingly hostile, one advocate said. When they talked about mothers who were crack, crack addicted, there wasn't what kind of treatment can we provide for them, but what kind of criminalization can we impose upon them? The result, different policy discussions for similar kinds of problems. And I would add a caveat here, though, which is that I think that in discussing the racial disparities in the treatment and perception of the, of the opioid crisis, um, and the more sympathetic treatment of whites, we don't want to fall into the trap of saying, so why should we give a damn, right? We absolutely should point out the racist double standard, but I would also argue that there's an urgent need to push for humane treatment, support, expanded services, sympathy, um, you know, for everyone who's affected by this crisis in all of its various forms. Um, King and Yamada Taylor last year wrote this about the decrease in um, life expectancy combined with the opioid crisis um, and, and growing in income inequality. Uh, she said, if we put these stories together, we would gain more insight into how ordinary white people have as, much, uh, have as much stake in the fight for a different kind of society as anyone else. We wouldn't so casually dismiss their suffering as privilege because they do not suffer as much as black and brown people in this country. In fact, we might find that the privileges of white skin run very thin in a country where 19 million white people languish in poverty. Um, apparently, the wages of whiteness are not so great that they can stop millions of ordinary white people from literally drinking and drugging themselves to death to escape the despair of living in this, quote, greatest country on earth. 
Princeton economist Angus Deaton, who along with Mary Case is, is the one who actually coined the term deaths of despair, put it this way about the recent decreases in US life expectancy. A society where this is going the wrong way, there's something very, very seriously wrong with it. And in fact, poverty is a major indicator for drug overdose deaths overall, um, opioids in particular. Case and Deaton found that, as Vijay uh, Prashad wrote at Portside, the, quote, the collapse of the job market and the lack of hope amongst working class um, have turned the poor towards various forms of addiction, including that of prescription drugs. Half of the men who are out of the labor force, they suggest, are taking a prescription painkiller such as an opioid. Like half, that's, that's pretty amazing. Um, and by the way, as I said earlier, this is a uniquely American problem. Today, approximately 80% of the global opioid prescription supply is consumed in the United States, which has just 5% of the world's population. U.S. opioid use is the highest of any country in the world and more than 50% higher than in Germany, the second-ranked country. Uh, there were about 300 million pain prescriptions written in 2015, worth $24 billion, well over the amount needed to give every American adult their own bottle of pills. The amount of opioids prescribed in 2015 was enough to keep every American medicated around the clock for three weeks, 24 7. Um, declining life expectancy is only one small facet of the crisis. There's also a tremendous toll being exacted in communities large and small, not only in deaths, but in the ripping apart of families, in trauma, in heavy social and economic burdens as well. Um, you know, overall, according to the Centers for Disease Control, the economic toll of the crisis is now $78 billion a year. There are certainly enough horrifying statistics that I could rattle them off all day. In fact, I cut a bunch of them out. Um, but beyond the statistics, what does all of this actually look like on the ground? And to be blunt, blunt it, it looks like piles of dead bodies. Um, in Montgomery County, Ohio, where the morgue is now constantly stacked floor to ceiling with bodies, 60 to 70 percent of them are victims of the opioid uh, uh, are victims of opioid overdoses. Um, since last year, to deal with the surge in overdose deaths, the coroner has hired six part-time coroners, two autopsy technicians, and three field investigators. Several times in 2015 and 2016, the office was overwhelmed, and he had to house some of the cor corpses in mobile morgues, trucks with refrigerated trailers. The state purchased the trucks in the mid-2000s with a grant from the Department of Homeland Security. They were intended to be used in the field to store bodies after a mass, mass casualty event like a plane crash or a terrorist attack. The coroner says the current crisis is not so different. Staff is overwhelmed, he said. This is a mass fatality crisis. Um, we can leave aside like why does Ohio have to buy, could think about mass fatality crisis and buy like surplus homeland security stuff. But, um, the crisis also looks like the video of a young mother that people might have seen passed out on the floor of a dollar store with her toddler dressed in frozen pajamas, inconsolable, crying, and tugging on her mother's hand. Um, my first thought was, why isn't someone comforting that child and helping that woman and is instead taking video? Um, that woman, by the way, uh, uh, who some stranger decided to record, uh, was later charged with child endangerment. The crisis also looks like children who are watching their parents die. 
and public schools, teachers, uh, social workers, and others who are doing whatever they can to try to fill a void that's really impossible um, to fill, to give kids some kind of stability. In West Virginia, which has the highest rate of overdose deaths and the highest rates of babies born dependent on drugs, 6,300 children are now in the state foster care system, nearly half of them because of parent substance abuse. Um, according to a very good article that just came out in The Nation by Zoe Carpenter, there are so many children now in the foster care system in West Virginia that the State Department of Health and Human Services has run out of homes in which to place these kids. In uh, one town called Ravenswood, an elementary school has as many as a quarter of kids in a given class being raised by a grandparent or in foster care after the incarceration or death of a parent. So if you want to know part of the reason why West Virginia teachers went on strike, this is part of the reason. Um, describing the impact on young kids who are now separated from their parents um, the, and the trauma and behavioral issues it causes, um, you know, it made me think actually of the, um, the, the audio recording we've heard of immigrant children in, uh, separated from their parents. Um, school psychologist Rebecca Wendell told Carpenter Quote, it's almost like their brain is short-circuiting, she said. These children often can't calm down, and ultimately they try to flee or hide under their desks, a behavior pattern that Wendell said is new. Uh, another face of this crisis is Michael Malcolm, um, who has now had to bury one son and watched another go to prison, um, charged in the overdose death of his brother. Michael's younger son shared drugs he purchased on the internet with his older brother. He is now one of an increasing number, at least 1,000 cases in uh, 36 states since 2015, where people are now being arrested or prosecuted in accidental overdose deaths. Um, this is recycled, recycling of a failed strategy um, that was used during the 1980s drug, drug wars. Prosecutors are bringing charges against people that range from murder by overdose to involuntary manslaughter to first degree murder. Even in cases where the other person may not have been present when the drugs were taken or where they tried to save the victim by calling 911 or administering the opioid reversal drug naloxone. According to Michael Malcolm, the cost of prosecution and incarceration would have been better spent on addiction treatment for his younger son that the family could not afford. It's kind of like blaming the leaves on the tree, you know? What about the roots, he said. The face of this crisis is also a seven-year-old girl meeting with a social worker in a psychiatric hospital in Cincinnati, Ohio. When asked, do you know why you're in this situation? The seven-year-old replied, because my mom and dad did drugs. She was at the hospital, according to the Cincinnati Inquirer, because post-traumatic stress and other mental disorders after she, quote, found her mother slumped over the toilet last year, high on heroin and barely conscious. Her father died of an overdose earlier this year. Children's Services placed, uh, placed the girl with a foster family, but that ended when she tried to drown her foster sister in a YMCA swimming pool. The toll of this crisis, um, just for seven days uh, around Cincinnati, the Inquirer did this thing where they, they tried to track everything that was going on. Um, it was 18 deaths, 180 overdoses, 200 heroin users sent to jail in that time, and 15 babies born with heroin-related medical problems. As the Inquirer put it, this is normal now, a week like any other, but a terrible week is no less terrible just because it is typical. 
The crisis also looks like the people with intense and chronic pain who are now suddenly finding themselves severely restricted in terms of the medication they can obtain, having to jump through increasingly rigorous hoops uh, to prove that they aren't drug seekers and worrying every day about whether they'll actually be able to function. In a display of utter callousness, um, we should not be surprised, and Attorney General Jeff Sessions said in a speech at the Attorney General's office in Tampa Bay in fe February that, quote, I am operating on the assumption that th this country prescribes too many opioids. People need to take some aspirin sometimes and tough it out a little. Well, Sessions should tell that to the family of Ryan Dickerson. In Portsmouth, Ohio, a public health official took an NPR reporter to an empty storefront, um, you know, there's no businesses left in this town, uh, where the window has become a memorial to all of the local people who have overdosed, including Dickerson. Quote, he was probably 19 or so, real young. He had been given some Oxycontin from a knee surgery that he had, and he was trying to hold on to his job. He didn't want to miss any days, and he ended up becoming addicted, and he overdosed and he died. The opioid crisis looks like the small towns in Texas, Florida, and elsewhere that became overrun with pill mills where users would line up to get, for a price, a large prescription every week with nearly no questions asked. In 2010, in uh, Shoto County, Ohio, the pill mills there dispensed 9.7 million pills, all legally prescribed, in a county of just 80,000 people. Two years later, after new regulations, new regulations were supposedly put in place and prosecutors began to aggressively go after these facilities, seven million pills were still prescribed. Or there's the now infamous case of uh, the town of Williamson in Mingo County, West Virginia. Between 2006 and two 2016, out-of-state drug companies shipped 20.8 million prescription painkillers to two pharmacies four blocks apart from each other. The town of Williamson has a population of 2,900 people. In the year 2008 alone, one of those drug distributors sent 5,624 prescription pain pills for every man, woman, and child to the town of Kermit, West Virginia, which has a population of 400. And perhaps most infamously, I would say that the opioid crisis also looks like the media posturing of politicians, starting with Trump, who sounded like some sort of knight of the living Nancy Reagan, telling reporters, <laughs> telling reporters late last year that one of the things our administration will be doing is a massive advertising campaign to get people, especially children, not to want to take drugs in the first place because they'll see the devastation and the ruination it causes to people and people's lives. They are bad. If we can teach young people and people generally not to start, it's really, really easy not to take them. I, you know, no one ever thought of that. Um, just say no, kids. I mean, that's really what it is. I, I, I actually had the misfortune of seeing one of these ads the other night. Uh, I just coincidentally, they are overwrought public service announcements of um, that show people like hitting themselves in the hand with a hammer. Um, one, the one I saw had a, a teenage girl taking off her seatbelt and driving her car into a dumpster. Um, they are um, supposed to be real stories of what people did in order to get in order to get opioids, you know. Um, and you know, they I, I would say they are stupid, totally useless. Uh, I mean, just ridiculous. But that's not surprising since the person who was put in charge of creating them is none other than current White House Counselor Kellyanne Conway. 
Uh, you know, even more cruel than Trump, of course, was Dan Picard, a city councilman in Middletown, Ohio. Picard made headlines last year when he floated a novel approach to treating opioid overdoses. He suggested a three strikes rule for people who overdose. The first two times a person overdoses, that person would have to pay back every cent by performing community service. If that same person overdoses a third time but has not completed community service, an ambulance will not go out to help. If we don't do anything, the city's gonna run out of money, he later said. So it's nice to know he has his priorities straight. So how did we get here? Well, you know, there's obviously always been drug, uh, drug use, um, very often worse in communities that suffer from poverty, blight, disinvestment, and housing jobs and schools. Um, and this hits, um, as I said, communities of color especially hard, but it hits all impoverished communities. You know, this isn't about some innate disease or predisposition to drug use and abuse, I would argue. It's about the larger social crisis and all of the instability and fear and anxiety and boredom and alienation that comes along with living in this world um, with poverty and job losses and how are you going to feed your kids this week. Um, you know, while the prescription epidemic really blossomed in the 90s, I think it's not a surprise that it's really taken on a new life since the Great Recession. This crisis has been brewing for a long time, a professor named Nancy Campbell told the Huffington Post in December. We have to ask ourselves why it came in the form that it did when it did. The answers, those answers do not lie entirely with the medical profession and with changes in how we treat and think about chronic pain. We have to look at deindustrialization and the changes in our lives in different regions in the country. Um, but there are also larger dynamics to the prescription opioid crisis that really do have to do with uh, the for-profit for healthcare and pharmaceutical industry. So I do want to focus on that a bit. Um, since then, that in turn is one of the things that's helped actually fuel a resurgence in some places of the latest wave of heroin use. Um, the widespread abuse of prescription opioids really came about as a consequence of several factors that dovetailed and that the pharmaceutical industry really took advantage of. Um, beginning in the 1960s um, and then gaining steam from there, there was a reevaluation of how to approach the management of pain, um, both chronic pain and also like palliative care for people who are near the end of their lives. The idea used to just be that like pain was a fact of life um, or that there was even something beneficial pain or toughened you up. Um, and what this meant was that people would suffer in really severe pain, patients with advanced cancer, for, for example, who just had to kind of make do with really inadequate drugs. Um, but beginning in the 60s, there starts to be kind of a shift in thinking to say that, you know, the evaluation of pain is actually an important indication of health. It should be treated as essentially another uh, vital sign, like your blood pressure or your temperature. Um, you know, you get at this point in time the beginnings of uh, pain specialists and pain clinics. And um, in the 90s, states began actually passing laws exempting doctors from prosecution if they prescribed opiates for pain within the practice of responsible health care. Um, and in fact, hospitals at some point actually began telling some doctors that they could be sued if they didn't take, uh, treat pain aggressively enough. 
Um, today, even, uh, someone, uh, a friend who's a nurse pointed out that hospital Medicare and Medicaid reimbursements are actually tied to patient satisfaction survey scores, which actually asks you specifically if your pain was managed. Um, so there's a monetary incentive to actually make sure you are really treating pain. Um, but the reality is that medicine should not be run like a Yelp review, right? I mean, this push to treat pa patients in pain with more compassion and stronger narcotics was a good impulse in, in many ways and in advance. But that became combined um, at the same time with aggressive marketing from drug companies which touted opioids as safe and non-addictive. Um, there was a, a five-sentence letter to a medical journal in 1980 that companies like Purdue Pharmaceuticals, the makers of OxyContin, would later claim was this landmark study that showed that people could not become addicted to prescription opioids didn't say that at all. It wasn't even a study. The guy who wrote it was like, he just was looking at some figures and kind of, you know, sent this letter in. Um, and he was actually looking at people who were in the hospital following surgery and given uh, opioids in a very restricted way, um, not people who were at home and taking them and allowed, un, you know, a, a totally unrestricted access to them. Um, so, so, sorry, I'm just checking the time here. Um, yeah, so Purdue, Purdue and other companies actually seized on this and, and said that because less than 1% of patients would become addicted from opioids, they could then be used for a very long time at very high doses with almost no side effects and that patients could not abuse them or become addicted to them. Um, Purdue is actually owned by the billionaire Sackler family, one of the world's richest families now. Arthur Sackler bought Purdue Frederick um, along with his brothers in 1952. He had actually had a background in medicine. He had been a, a psychiatrist, but he left psychiatry to become an advertising executive at a medical ad firm. And that's where he really pioneered the art of drug advertising, creating teaser campaigns, direct mailing physicians with like postcards for diseases that he made up. Um, and in fact, one of the first drugs they marketed, um, it, he and his, he, he then saw like what the potential for this kind of marketing could be if you had a drug company. So then he and his brothers bought the drug company. And one of the first drugs they marketed was Valium, which became the first billion dollar drug. It was marketed specifically to women um, as a way to cure the stress in their lives as wives and mothers. Um, Sackler also pioneered the idea of drug companies funding things like continuing medical education, which doctors are required to take for licensing, um, but they would host them at cushy vacation destinations, whining and dining them and having them sit through educational seminars in which the person teaching would just happen to say, hey, to treat XYZ ailment, you have to treat it this way, and oh gosh, we just happen to have the perfect drug for that. Um, so in the case of OxyContin, Purdue actually sponsored continuing education seminars which said that a new cutting edge technique for treating pain was using time to release opiates. Of course, it was just a coincidence that OxyContin was the only time release opiate on the market at the time. Um, and they inundated doctors with stuff branded with the Oxy logo, fishing hats, coffee mugs, golf balls, a CD of swing music that had the phrase swing in the right direction with OxyContin written on it. I mean, on a, it's really disgusting Like when you read this stuff. They funded um, bogus societies and websites with names like Partners Against Pain and the American Pain Foundation, right, that were supposed to be informational, you'd think, but it were really essentially drug commercials. 
Purdue salespeople would go through hospitals six or more times a year to pitch their drugs to doctors, and all the while they claimed fa falsely that less than 1% of patients would get addicted to these drugs. And they also claimed that Oxycontin was unique because it had this 12-hour formula. It was the idea that you don't have to take multiple doses of medication, one pill in the morning, one at night, that's all you need. So Purdue salespeople, since they were promoting the idea that you couldn't get addicted to these drugs, that you could then use it for everything, not just cancer or serious end-of-life pain, but back pain chronic, and other kinds of chronic pains. Pain. Of, of course, there was 35 million patients with back pain in the U.S. when Oxy came into the market in 1996, and ca cancer patients were just a fifth of that. So, you know, do the math. Um, but in many cases, you know, opioid prescriptions actually weren't, weren't well suited to the conditions for which they were being uh, prescribed. And Purdue actually lied from the very start about the drug. There have been a damning uh, series of recent exposés in the New York Times and the LA Times in particular. Um, include, and a book by a journalist named Barry Meyer. But basically, from the very first study of Oxy, which, by the way, was performed on women recovering from gynecological surgeries in Puerto Rico, um, it showed that for a large number of patients, the drug wore off very early, like m m way before the 12-hour mark. Uh, multiple other studies, reports from doctors and reports from Purdue's own sales reps said it was wearing off early. The problem for Purdue is that this then create, this creates um, essentially cycles of withdrawal and euphoria within the person, right? You go through withdrawal because you're like, it's wearing off, and then you take another dose. And so it actually increases the risk that you'll become addicted. And Purdue, solely to protect their profits, repeatedly instructed its reps to tell doctors that if a patient was complaining that the drug was wearing off before 12 hours, the real problem was just that the doctor hadn't prescribed a large enough dosage. So you have a perfect setup where a drug that someone should only be on for a limited amount of time and, you know, is then suddenly prescribed for a huge number of ailments for a lengthy amount of time at increasing doses. Um, but then the drug wears off early, right? And so people go in with, to withdrawal, so then the doctor gives you a, a larger dose. Um, it not only raises the probability of addiction, it actually raises the probability of death. Meanwhile, Purdue and its massive sales force was making money hand over fist. It was so successful that Purdue increased the sales quotas of Oxy for sales, rep to make, for sales reps to make their bonuses. Um, in 96, uh, the first year it was on the market, uh, the company paid a million in Oxycontin bonuses. Five years later, they paid 40 million. Um, they, one uh, author said, you know, the profits were so out of line with the rest of the drug industry that they bore a striking, instead, a striking similarity to the kind of profits made in the drug underworld. Um, yeah, in one 96 memo headlined with dollar signs and its bonus time in the neighborhood, a manager reminded sales reps that, uh, getting, that, that uh, getting doctors to raise the dosage strength was key to a big payday. He who sells the 40 milligram, which was the largest dose at the time, will win the battle. Um, there's tons of stuff like this. By the way, the, the, they raised the, um, the, the highest dosage, I think, to like 160 milligrams later. Um, in 2007, Purdue, it was, it, it reminded me of like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, but like a pharmaceutical version of it. Um, in 2007, Purdue pleaded guilty to federal felony charges um, that they misled regulators, doctors, and patients, um, and, and three, uh, um, 
Yeah, they paid $600 million in fines, and three executives actually paid an additional $34 million, and they were required to do uh, community service. It was the large, one of the largest amounts paid by a drug company, um, but it is a drop in the bucket, really. Um, I'm going to have to skip ahead a little bit. Um, in fact, it wasn't until last month that Purdue finally fired its sta sales staff and announced it was ending promotion of its op opioid painkillers um, directly to medical providers. Um, that's a nice gesture, I guess, until you learn that overall Purdue and the Sackler family has raked in $31 billion in profits since the beginning of the company's uh, marketing push. And around that uh, same time, some 200,000 people have died, both from overdoses related to Oxy and to other prescription opioids. Um, Purdue was greedy, but they weren't the only ones. There were several other uh, op opioid manufacturers that you know, did similar things, though maybe not to the same extent. Um, you know, at a much deeper level, I would say the entire industry was actually aided and abetted by the American political system in which money buys you the right connections and the right laws. Um, there's actually a huge number of uh, former DEA lawyers and agents and former Food and Drug Administration officials who go directly from working in those agencies in Washington, where they're supposed to be part of the watchdogs, to then working for these companies, um, you know, the, where you can then be fixers for these companies. And then, there's, of course, there's many politicians turned lobbyists who perform the same role for a hefty fee. Um, Purdue hired in 2002 former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani to be their fixer. Um, you know, who America's mayor right after 9/11, right? And talked about how his, he was, these drugs helped him as a cancer survivor. Um, Giuliani wasn't alone in defending them. Um, in 2001, when the state of West Virginia was trying to file a civil case against Purdue for deceptive ads, um, the, uh, Purdue called in an, an attorney named Eric Holder, who would later become Barack Obama's attorney general, to defend them. On a morning in 2004, when the case was ready to go to trial, Holder secured a settlement where P Purdue would pay $10 million over four years. Um, and would not have to admit to any wrongdoing, and the records, all of the records, would be sealed. Yeah. Um, so let me skip ahead. Just so, yeah, so Purdue and other opiate, between uh, 2006 and 2015, uh, opioid producers spent $900 million on lobbying. That's, just to put it in perspective, eight times the amount spent by the gun industry. Um, and they have purchased immunity from the elite, who are loath to stand up to stem the epidemic that is hemorrhaging poor, uh, poor communities in the U.S. Um, so, um, yeah, and, and some of them are just so shameless. Right now, while there's this pronounced need pretty much everywhere for more widely distributed Narcan um, for first responders, um, drug company Kaleo that produces an injectable version of Narcan is actually um, jacked up their prices from $690 to a staggering $4,500 uh, for a twin pack. Um, and this is, you know, this is not un uncommon. So given all of this, you know, what has been the response and what should be the response? 
despite claiming that he would fix the crisis, right, of course, Trump has done very little to actually put resources towards it. Um, in some cases, like I said, just recycling uh, failed, tried and failed uh, ideas from the drug war of the 80s. Um, he did uh, infamously float the idea of applying the death penalty for some drug crimes, um, like his friend in the Philippines, Duterte. Um, Trump declared uh, the opioid crisis a public health emergency, which did nothing, like nothing changed. Um, you know, Congress allocated six billion, which, you know, sounds okay, but that's nothing compared to the scale of the crisis, especially when compared to something like the $582 billion uh, military budget. Um, you know, in theory, there's some things like a plan to maybe uh, expand access for Medicaid and release to inpatient treatment, um, you know, but that takes money, which we all know what they want to do to Medicaid and Medicare at this point. Um, more recently, Trump has actually said that the opioid crisis is the fault of the Mexicans and the Chinese who allow drugs to be sent from their nations to ours. He's also said that success in tackling the opioid crisis will be the number of federal drug prosecutions brought uh, and the average length of prison terms they produce. And Jeff Sessions is all about that. He um, has said he is for expanding mandatory minimum sentencing, um, expanding, you know, including the prosecution of friends and family members, um, like the case I mentioned before. Um, yeah, so, um, this, and by the way, um, to the people who are overseeing some of this have just incredibly wrong medical opinions. Um, Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price actually said that uh, medication-assisted treatment like methadone and Suboxone, which is actually one of the few things shown to be very effective in reducing opi uh, opioid overdo overdoses by re reducing craving, uh, cravings, um, he basically totally said like this is bogus like we shouldn't do this um, they are uh, also con the Trump White House is also considering slashing the budget for the office that's in charge of coordinating the government's anti-drug response by nearly 95 percent um, you know th there are so many things that we could be doing and, and it should be said that there are communities where in some cases and states uh, you know out, out of sheer desperation people are trying a whole number of things just to see if anything helps um, and I just want to go quickly through a few of them in terms of immediate harm reduction. There are so many things we could do, right? Clean needle exchanges and safe injection sites, which have been proven to work. Um, and our, our clean needle exchanges are actually banned in 15 states. Um, safe injection sites have had a, a lot of good success in other countries. Wider availability of Narcan and Naloxone to first responders and to, to users, and you have to teach users how to use it. Um, like in Chicago, where um, heroin use is centered among um, blacks who usually uh, snort it, um, they don't necessarily know how to use needles, right? So it's not just about giving it to people, you have to actually teach people how to use it. Um, we need more rapid response first responders, we need to expand methadone treatment, a number of states are suing opioid manufacturers as well as distributors and pharmacies, kind of like um, the, leg the legal, um, the lawsuits against tobacco, and they should be sued. They should be held accountable for the deaths they've caused. Um, frankly, the Sackler family should not have a penny left to its name.
Bernie Sanders has put forward legislation that would actually ban marketing um, that suggests opioids are not addictive and do some other things. And, and it, it, it's good stuff. And it would actually, you know, potentially hold um, executive, drug company executives um, would possibly even face prison sentences. Um, I think it's a great idea. I would support it. I think it's probably got a snowball's chance in hell of actually passing. Um, you know, we should have price controls on drugs like Narcan. Uh, we should stop the cuts to Medicare and Medicaid. And then beyond that, there's a huge number of things that would actually go well, well beyond that, like expanding drug treatment facilities, ending zero tolerance policies and drug court policies. We need expanded treatment programs in multiple languages. We need to make sure that immigrants can access treatment without fear that they'll be deported. Women need childcare and respite care and help to get out of abusive relationships, which are often part of um, their, a feature of their drug abuse. We need food pantries, we need housing, so, you know, all of these things actually go right along with, um, you know, with, if we actually want to tackle this crisis in, in a serious way. We should absolutely have a national single health care system. system. We need fully funded schools with social workers. And I would say too, we need um, decriminalization of drugs as well, so to not start another round of drug war incarceration. Ultimately, though, if we want to stop the opioid crisis, and I swear I'm wrapping up with this, <laughs> so, uh, we have to address the underlying social crisis that produces the alienation and despair that drives us, address the utter decimation of working class communities across this country, address the rampant inequality that this society is built on, challenge the idea that the suffering and misery we are witness to is normal and natural. We need to stop treating addiction like it's either a moral failing or some incurable disease, and we need to see people with substance abuse problems as active fighters in their own communities for their own rights, fighting for the right to be parents, the right to retain custody after criminal convictions, the right to restore voting rights to felons, fighting to create their own community group therapy in places where you know it doesn't exist, right? I mean, people are already doing all this stuff. We need to help and like figure out ways to support that too. And that's going to take a big, big movement, right? Because we don't have the necessary people to, to to do that. But it puts the line to the idea that addicts are only a population to be controlled and overseen by the state, you know, incarcerated under court mandated parole. It makes you start to think about the ways in which a society with different priorities that saw addicts and users as people with agency over their own lives could actually not consign people to the margins, but actually bring people fully in to the fight together with the rest of us. The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org.